0: Hello, good morning. Thanks for listening. It's Tuesday, May the 24th. Thanks to Tom for filling in yesterday while I was on my way back from the Preakness uh, in Baltimore, but back in TW11 today on a warm, sunny morning. Welcoming in Jane Mangan to the show. Jane, who spent the weekend at the Curra for the Irish 1000 and 2000 Giddies. The attendance figures have been released for the two days, and it would be fair to say they're not exactly very flash between the Saturday and the Sunday. Uh, Jane, how many did they get and what can they do about getting a few more?
1: Well, I must start by saying the current at the weekend was most enjoyable. Um, to have one of the world's best 3 rows there, a native trail, was a treat. And that was uh, disappointing then when you consider that it only attracted 5,000 200 people through the turnstiles on Saturday. Yeah, you could argue that the 2,000 guineas wasn't the, the deepest of renewals, but you had that star attraction. And I suppose for a track that has a capacity of 30,000, you must say that 5,200 uh, is disappointing. And then on Sunday, we had what could have been a champion announcing herself, homeless songs, her uh, just the way she traveled through the 1,000 guineas, the way... She stamped her authority in the last furlong, suggests that she's in a different league in that mild division of the Phillies, and I wouldn't be surprised if she could beat the Colts at top level too. But on Sunday, there was 4,800 people watched her live in real time at the Curragh. So I do get the feeling that, yes, the Curragh has come under massive criticism in the past, the grandstand noise, the different facilities having to adjust, having reopened after its refurbishment. But I do get the feeling, with Brian Kavanagh now back at the helm and a strong team behind him, that it is a rebuilding exercise. I don't think they expected um, masses to, to be attracted to the weekend that was for whatever reason. I think this is now a work in progress um, and laying the foundation for better in the future. But it would have to be better because if we can't get you know numbers through the turnstiles for these types of races, then what a regular race days? What chances have they got?
0: All right. Well, I've been speaking to Brian Kavanagh, the chief executive of The Curra, formerly the chief executive of Horse Racing Ireland. And I asked him for a comment on what looked to be pretty thin attendance figures over the weekend well I think you know as you said
2: yourself, first of all it was a wonderful weekend in terms of the quality of the racing and, and, and the results and the, the spread of winners uh, you know with regard to the, the, the numbers uh, you know we, we, we were happy with the weekend uh, it's you know we, we've come here in the Kura. it's a journey we're on uh, you know to and we've always said you know get the experience right get the racing right uh, look after your customers and the numbers will follow and I, I firmly believe that's the, the right strategy to adopt uh, you know so so really this is the, 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 the first year uh, clear run we've had at the new facilities here at the Kura, and people are getting used to them. We're getting used to them ourselves uh, and uh, you know i think we've got plenty of feedback and we're in the business of listening to feedback you know we've got fe- plenty of positive feedback plenty of constructive suggestions uh, you know as to how to improve the experience uh, but as you say i think it's a challenge for racing generally mm. but particularly here at the current the bank of our, our redevelopment All
0: right, what do you think the key areas for improvement could be for you
2: well I think you, you know what we've done here and I think it's it's it's, it's proven very popular we've won singular closure here at the Curra, uh, you know we've we, we, we've you know 1200 seats on the winning line the final furlong which are free to race goers we've tried to open up uh, the bars and restaurants uh, you know in a more democratic fashion so people have access to to as many parts of the racecourse as possible uh, you know and uh, you know is that catches on and people find their way around the race course that's proving popular and I think uh, that combined with you know excellent racing and you know good uh, um, off-track entertainment uh, is the combination we want to get after key to that for us is the support of our local uh, hinterland here in Kildare uh, you know we're doing a lot of work on that uh, listening to feedback and listen to local support groups you um, you know, but um, as I said, uh, overall we were happy with the weekend. It was a, it was a, it was a fabulous weekend's uh, action on the track, uh, and you know we've uh, we, we, we've plenty of work ons from the the feedback we've got.
0: Do you think you fine tuned the actual facility now? Obviously, when a when a place gets redeveloped, we saw it with Ask, we saw it with paris lanchon particularly at the Curra. There's teething problems, you know, issues with the grandstand. Is it was all that sorted now, to to your mind?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think I think, I think we're getting there. You're always you're always developing your facilities. Uh, you know, the, the the roof issue has been addressed. I think we're now finding the right places for the bars and restaurants. Uh, you know, the right configuration of them. Right, right configuration of owners' facilities. As I said, you know, when you pay your money at your gate uh, at the gate here at the Curran, you can pretty much get uh, you know to most parts of the racecourse. Uh, you know, our lily white bar or derby bar you know excellent viewing of the final uh, couple of furlongs of the races uh, and as i said free seating on our on our new grandstand uh, that takes time to to spread the word about that uh, and uh, i think you know as i said in, in a way COVID did allow a little bit of breathing space to get those tweaks done
0: what about price points brown what's a reasonable amount to charge somebody to 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 attend a, a day's racing
2: well, I think our our, our price here at, at the weekend was thirty five euro, but up to you know five days before it, you could buy for twenty five euro online. Uh, I think that's reasonable for the the the, the value which is offered, uh, and then key to that then is the is, is the price of of food and beverage when people get here. And again, we, we, we do a lot of work benchmarking those prices with, uh, you know, local uh, hotels, local bars and pubs. Uh, I think that's a key element as well in terms of delivering value for money for for, 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 for our patrons.
0: I was just having a look back through the uh, HRI figures, the attendance figures, and um, 2018 to 2019, there was a, a drop-off on the flat of, of 3.1%. And I mean, it looks as though there's going to be another drop-off in 2022. 2020- if you're going to compare that to, to pre-COVID, now, um, are you are you in any way confident that that is a decline that can be arrested, or is racing simply losing its popularity?
2: Oh no i don't think that's that it, it could definitely be arrested and i think you, you know the, the business is changing as well you know the the, the we saw that through COVID. i think if, if you said to me uh you know before COVID we, we would have uh two years with no spectators i would have said you know with my previous hat on we might lose half a dozen race courses uh we didn't The the, the model changed uh you know race courses Uh, are are adapting but a key element to the success and popularity racing is people at the track Uh, and I've no 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 doubt that that uh, those trends can be can be reversed and uh, indeed uh, move in the opposite direction I think there's a desire for people to get out and socialize now post-covid I think race meetings can position themselves as a safe place to to do so to meet people to enjoy themselves
0: Brian Kavanagh there, Chief Executive of the Curra, formerly boss of, of Horse Racing Ireland, a very powerful figure in, in Irish and European racing. Jane Mangan is still with me. Uh, Jane, you intimated before you listened to Brian there that you had faith in his ability to turn the situation around. In your opinion, where does he have to start?
1: I think it's about customer base. He mentioned there the hinterland of the Curra, and we're just on the footstep of the capital of Dublin. And for whatever reason, we don't have that appeal getting people out from the city into the racetracks. Now, people will, in this country will argue you're going straight up against the GAA, which we know is like the Premier League in the UK. But I don't take excuses from competition. We need to stand alone on our own two feet. So uh, I think it's all about getting the, local, the locals back. We've got the product. We just need to sell it as best we can. And as, while we will all attest that we're doing our best, maybe we can all as a group do better.
0: Okay, so what would you like to see there that isn't there at the moment in terms of in terms of structure, space, the way that space is used, restaurants, bars, facilities, loos, betting kiosks? What can be done better to make a better customer experience?
1: Well, being straight, it's a lot better than it, when it initially reopened because when it initially reopened, you got your ticket at... At admin walking through the gate but you felt segregated at various parts of the track i mentioned on this pod when it reopened that that titanic grandstand made you feel like there was three tiers that you were the irish person down the bottom in third class rather than being allowed upstairs in first now brian mentioned there that the seating at the winning line is now your your to your ticket can basically get you all bar uh, the owners and trainers in the private boxes on the top floor which is perfectly fine I think that's the biggest drawback anytime I go racing in the UK as a race goer I feel a little bit segregated unless I have uh, a real top pass which most people don't have so you don't want to ever feel excluded from the from the action uh, it's a very big space to fill and I was actually surprised when I saw the attendance figures because having observed from paddock side a lot of people were out and about and they were obviously uh around a parade ring to see the horse come back in. I was disappointed when I actually saw the numbers because it felt like there was more. What can they do? I don't know. I, I think it's a, it's a little bit of a head scratcher because we had the product, we have the facility. Maybe it's a case of in past years, pre COVID even, the, the bridges were burnt with a lot of people with the previous facility and maybe the previous people in charge. And maybe now it's a case of mending bridges
0: yeah, well, it was encouraging to hear Brian say that he doesn't think that a decline in the interest of flat racing is, is irreversible. I mean, I guess he, he has to say that. What What's your view on that?
1: I was at Leopardstown for a very good meeting recently. Um, I think it could have been trials trial evening. And again, Leopardstown is more so on the doorstep of the capital. It was a Friday evening and it was really pleasant weather. And it was a very, very small attendance. It almost felt like lockdown all over again. So maybe it's not a reflection on the racetrack. Maybe the the sport as a whole is losing its appeal. And uh, that's only maybe, that's only hypothetical. That's just me questioning. But I think my own demographic, my own generation are more into different sports. And maybe that's an area we need to concentrate on because I do feel like the older demographic are always well represented at the races. We know that from looking around. Um, And and maybe it's just, I'm not alienating my generation, but maybe we're not capturing the imagination of the younger brigade. And maybe that's where we need to concentrate on.
0: All right. On this subject, on a related subject, there, there are significant jitters in Ireland, but perhaps even more significant jitters in England about not just attendance is dropping, but what racecourses are doing when they're not getting that many people through the gate and how they're attempting to cut their costs by hiving off various areas for non-public use. And it's led to significant speculation that actually, when it comes to the much smaller meetings, perhaps some of those all-weather meetings that take place during the winter, wouldn't they be better off going back to what they were doing during COVID, which was actually to race behind closed doors and just put out something like a Bags Greyhound product for the benefit of the betting shops, uh, and, and watching on your phone, watching online, watching the director to home television, and that would then be a sustainable product. Now, I've been in touch with ARC, the race course group who would administer, run, and or own a, a big portion of the fixtures that people are talking about, and they have said, this is news to us. We have no such plans certainly not something we are considering. Uh, I also got in touch with the British Horse Racing Authority. They said to me that from a regulatory sense, there's nothing they don't believe that would prevent racecourses from running behind closed doors if that's what they wanted to do. There's nothing in the guidelines that indicates they have to open their doors uh, to the public. But nobody at the BHA uh, has heard that this is an idea that has been actively mooted. But there is a There is a flurry of rumours doing the rounds that this is something that is being put on the table, Jane, but are moving to to deny that, that it is something that they are interested in doing.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you got that response. I've also heard the whispers, and they are worrying whispers, to be honest, because I think once you alienate your fan base, which is the public, once you deny them access, then you're no better than the virtual product that you see in betting shops. We all experience behind closed doors racing during COVID and you mustn't ever forget that it's the, the entire product is actually about the owner, but when you put a a race meeting that is perfectly accessible to the public behind closed doors, then you are admitting that you're only running it as a function to satisfy the betting shops and the punters. Thus, why would a person have a, a horse in training? Why would owners pay for that experience of absolute tumbleweed at the races? this i don't believe in smoke without fire but i'm glad you got the response you did
0: yeah i mean clearly it doesn't take a genius to work out that you know the economics of it might make sense in the short term even though it's a it's a it's a terrible commentary on the long-term the long-term future of the sport if you believe that if you believe that's the case
1: yeah well that's why you have virtual racing nobody's paying for those horses in training nobody's paying for those overheads because they're aren't any uh, i think this is real sport and it deserves to have an audience the audience deserves to have the option of going and like i said i think you're completely turning off owners having horses and training if you're condoning such activities
0: well it's a blithe assumption isn't it that yeah if you, if you were to forward this argument it's the blithe assumption that it is it is sustainable so that you would always have enough horses to fill these races even if there was almost no incentive whatsoever to go and see your horse running. Now, there may be data to support the fact that not many owners go to those meetings anyway, and, and, and what does it matter? But surely over time, the, uh, the, the effect would be enormously detrimental.
1: Again, we're only running those race meetings functional for betting companies to make money. What, you know, who's running the sport?
0: Um, you mentioned at the beginning of the programme, Jane, the victories of Native Trail and Homeless Songs and your thoughts on them. Uh, the victory of Alan Kerr in the Tassels Gold Cup was a, a striking one for a trainer in outstanding form and people now talking up as a possibility for the championship, William Haggis.
1: Yeah, it was. A, he's r- working at around 40% winners to runners. It's incredible, Maureen. Haggis uh, was on duty at the Curra, Tom Markham said he didn't have time to even walk the track. He got down to the five pole, didn't know how to get down to the start, having never ridden there before, but he knew he's way home. And he had to be really strong. But I, I had to, throughout the race, I was thinking, oh my God, Aidan O'Brien is going to make us all eat humble pie here. Because after winning the Bursford as a two-year-old high definition, had this massive reputation, Who, which he was failing abysmally to... Uphold and Ryan Moore kicking from four out at the Curra. That's so far out in a in a tough track, and he only just got caught in the last fifty yards on high definition. Aidan O'Brien take a bow, win, lose or draw. That was amazing training performance. Uh, State of Rest and and Lord North assuring that that was one of the best Group Ones run in Ireland in recent times. I think outside of the Champion Stakes, probably um, the best. And you know, State of Rest is the highest rated horse in Ireland. So. Alan Kerr has a, has a very bright future, but hard to believe it was his first Group 1 victory and, of course, the first Group 1 for Tom Markand in this country, first ride in Ireland, um, and what a way to start.
0: And, Jane, we, we featured the uh, what used to be called Breakfast of the Stars, now the Epsom Gallops Morning quite extensively yesterday uh, with the help of Dave and, and Charlotte, and uh, we heard from John Gosden and, and uh, Charlie Appleby in particular. Anything really strike you out of that? Yes, we learned plenty yesterday, but
1: we're yet to learn if Aiden will actually run. Uh, Roger Varian, yet to confirm his place in the lineup. Uh, Nation's Pride, obviously, subject to a piece of work today. Probably listening to Charlie Appleby could be supplemented on Monday. And uh, Walk of Stars and the Hani still impressing him as well. But Desert Crown remains top of the market. Aidan O'Brien seems to be very sweet on Stone Age over his other horses, changing of the guard, United Nations and Star of India, who could yet still go to France. And Dunica O'Brien with Piz Baddiel, that's just simmering, albeit Buckaroo, did leave the form down in the 2000 guineas on Saturday. But yeah, I think we just learned that they're all alive and well. And of course, the filly, uh, Emily Upjohn, just, you know, oh so easy, putting her in the same bracket as tigruda that would nearly be good enough to win this year's Oaks. I don't think Tuesday really did her credentials any harm uh, on Sunday, but she got a hard race in the process.
0: Um, what did you make of the decision to run Nash White at the Oaks in preference to the Prida Diane?
1: De yeah, very pleased to hear that. And I think Holly Doyle is a live chance of winning her first classic. She's a filly by Frankel who has every right to, to, to go to Epsom. And I think taking on her stable mate, she has every chance. She's got a really good attitude. I think the last day, we probably even saw more than we should have seen because when she quickened up, she put daylight between her herself and her rivals a lot earlier than maybe Holly Doyle had anticipated, ending up in front a little bit too soon, but extending away. And uh, she's, she's a very exciting filly who we probably still don't know, a bit like Emily Upjohn, where her ceiling lies.
0: Well, one person we didn't hear from on yesterday's podcast but was at the gallops morning was trainer Rafe Beckett, who's set to saddle the Judmont-owned Westover. In the Derby, he's the horse who won the Sandown Classic Trial. The first question that Rafe was asked in the press huddle afterwards uh, was why he hadn't run subsequently.
3: Well, I didn't really see that there was a benefit to it running again. I thought the benefit was in bringing him here or running him, running him downhill left-handed. You know, if we gone to Lingfield, for example, or you know, the benefit was in an away day rather than another run. I felt. Uh, so we'll see whether I'm right about that or not, but. Um, I don't, think, uh, I, I, I don't think the Dante would necessarily have fitted him particularly well. So I'm glad we came here.
4: How, how excited are you? What
3: do you make of your chance? Yeah. yeah. You know what it, it takes to win Epsom Classics. So yeah. I mean, I thought the last horse I ran in it was Max Vega. I thought it, he'd be made for it. You know, little pony, wheel round here, no problem. He was all over the joint. So, you know, you never really know. Uh, but I think... Um, I think he's got a genuine shout of being in the mix. Do I think he can win? <laughs> that would be a big shout. Do I think he can be in the first four? Definitely. So. And in terms of the occasion, Ray, there's going to be a massive crowd on the Saturday. you think he's going to be OK? Handy? He's quite experienced now, you know. <laughs> You know this. You know he had three runs at two, and he, you know, he went to he went to Sandown, then Newbury, then Ponty. You know he, he he's quite experienced for a horse of his size and shape. So I think he'll handle it pretty well. It was noticeable when we took him up to the paddock before he went out, walked the first lap when he was like that. Walk, walk, I led him around, He was like that on me, and then he, when he did another lap, he was as good as gold. And I suspect that's. That's, that's him, you know. Once he's not suspect, I know that's him. Once he's done something once, it, it, it registers, you know, and uh, I suspect that uh, that won't be a problem on Saturday week.
0: Well, there is a very special and a very unusual lot going under the virtual hammer today at the Goffs online sale, and that is the dam of Constitution Hill, Queen of the Stage, who's in fold to Constitution Hill's sire, Blue Brazil, and is being offered by Constitution Hill's breeder, Sally Newt, who's with me now. Now, by the time a lot of people listen to this, Sally, I suspect you will know how much she's made and where she's going. Um, Just talk me through your emotions this morning.
4: Um, Very nervous. I feel very sick. Um, No, I I just feel... um, Just just a jubbing wreck, Really? (laughs) It's uh, as I say, you know. It's, it's it is bittersweet because obviously I've had her for a long time now, and I'm with her every day. So, you know, you do get very very close to to your horses, uh, and you love them, you know. Um, so obviously, I've got that side of the emotion really of letting it go. But it's but on the other, hand, it's quite exciting, really. You know, to see what happens today.
0: I mean, there'll be people asking couldn't you have just put her in foal to the same stallion again and your foals would have made lots of money and she'd have been fantastic for you for years on end? It it must have been a really tricky decision to make.
4: Yes, it is. It isn't a decision that we took, like you know, easily, really. We finished an awful lot of thought. Um, And, you know, it's sort of, yeah, well, what, what do you say, really? It's sometimes you have, as I said before, really, you have got to sell the good ones to pay for the... Not so good ones. I've been doing it an awful long time. Well, not an awful long time. I've been breeding for quite a while now. And I haven't you know, I have made any money at it, really, at all. Um, you do it for the love and for the passion, you know, and for the sport. And it's a wonder, wonderful thing to do. And I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm hands-on personally, so I thoroughly enjoy them out there every day with them. But sometimes I think you just have to be a bit more sensible and try and, try and think, well, Maybe if it, you know if i want to eat, hopefully i'll continue breeding and uh, hopefully if we have a little bit more money put back in the pot um, i can continue so um so that was the decision we came up with really
0: well i wish you all the best and fingers crossed that what you you make from her you can reinvest and then produce lots of Lots of Constitution Hills from, from here on in.
4: Well, that, was, that would be lovely. It? No, no, we can, we can dream. you know, but uh, no, that'd be fantastic. But thank you very much. That's wonderful. Thank
0: you. Well, it is Tuesday, which means we go around the world of Bloodstock with our friends at Weatherby's, their Global Stallion app and their Stallion book. And you can't go too long on this feature without encountering another member of the uh, Callahan family i think robert who i'm checking in with today is the third sign of the dynasty we've spoken to on this feature uh, robert who works with his father gay at morristown uh, latin stud where dark angel heads a five uh, strong stallion roster and it's very close to the family's other farm yeomanstown stud where we've already uh, done a feature on this on this show uh, and that's near near nace um robert good morning tell me a little bit about the history of of where you are now where you're standing talking to me this morning
5: uh, well, <clears throat> Morristown Latin. um, my father Gay uh, bought in 1987, um, six years after he acquired Yeomanstown, and um, Yeomanstown was already a famous kind of stud farm, where Morristown was actually just a cattle farm. Um, he bought it off Oliver Caffrey, who was a professional polo player, and it was just a pure plain canvas, uh, no, no, uh, no fencing, no, no, nothing, just a, a dirt road down the middle of it. <laughs> and uh, he developed it into a stud farm and um, he's had a lot of of great success there in the last uh, 30 odd years. I
0: I guess though you've got to have a bit of vision as to as to how land might work for horses it's not surely as simple as saying I can buy up any land in Ireland and yeah it'll be great for for raising raising animals or horses is it?
5: Oh, no, here, look, there's a lot to do with it. There was, here, location-wise, it was very near to Yomestown, which was a huge plus. Um, and just the land around here, it was a very dry farm, uh, which is, you know, in, in Ireland's weather, it's a very uh, helpful thing to have. Um, but it was just, you know, it, it was an ideal location, and as I said great land, and uh, the fact that it was a bank canvas, gay was able to kind of shape it the way he wanted, and, yeah, you know, he had great he's a great vision there even any other farm we've bought in recent years he's he's unbelievable uh, to draw a map and plan out the fields the way he wants and uh, to, to make it very functional um, without having to need a large number of staff you know um,
0: I'd I, I said at the beginning you can't go too long on here without me running into one member of your family or another just, just explain where you all fit and who runs what and where <sighs>
5: so yeah so um <clears throat> gay gay's kind of the overseer of everything uh so it, it, it does it. David runs yomatown where our yearlings and uh breed of horses are, and then I run Marstown, where we have the five stallions and uh, around a hundred broodmares and uh, obviously a large number of falls every year. So I, we kind of we do it. We all do it together, but we each have our own little uh, niche. And then my brother Guy has a farm that's about 10 minutes away on the current called Moor. And then Peter, our, our oldest brother, is in America, has Wood's Edge Farm in Kentucky, which is doing very well.
0: So you're all working a little together, but is there is there some friendly rivalry as well?
5: I <laughs> oh, always, always here. You know, families. Uh, <clears throat> there's always fighting going on in all families. But no, we 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 do. Uh, yeah, look, we're, we're all working for the same goals and towards the same targets. But yeah, there is. Here, look, uh, the the foal sales are always the most competitive. Like when we're trying to buy buy falls every year, and saying, well, "I want that one," and well, I also want that one. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> we, we generally we'll, we'll buy the fall and then and then uh, decide afterwards who, who gets a piece or who gets what. <laughs>
0: I, I see. What I really need to do is to is to is to record one of the one of these conversations. I just leave you in a room together and figure out what really goes on behind uh, behind closed doors. Now, your your great flag bearer at the moment is and has been for a long time, uh, Dark Angel. So you, there are other stallions, I'm sure that you know you're going to be pumping more marketing spend into, but they all have to aspire to to what he's done, I guess.
5: Oh, he is here, look, Dark Angel is a very special horse for us because the fact you know we bred him here ourselves as well. Um, and then he's He only spent I think twelve twelve months away from the farm uh, for his tour career. Um, Barry Hills bought him in the uh, Goffs Doncaster Sale in, in in August, and then we bought him back the following September after he uh, won the Middle Park. Um. So and then he's just since then things have just gone from strength to strength to him. Like he's just he's the once in a lifetime with a horse, Dark Angel.
0: And it's not as though he was the first stallion ever to retire at the end of his two-year-old career, but there was a there was a bit of a hullabaloo about it, wasn't it? At the time, I remember talking to you about it, and then and then suddenly he's produced horses that have have excelled at four, five, six, seven years old.
5: Exactly, exactly. Like here, you know, here there was there was a lot of country overs, uh, but back then, you know, there wasn't this you know really good three-year-old sprinting campaign that there is now, like No Commonwealth Cup or races like that. So. You know, if he didn't make a step up to the mile for it to be kind of a guinea's horse, you know, it's very easy for those type of horses back then to get lost for a year. Um, so here we, at the time we needed a, a new horse, and he fitted the bill. And um, but yeah, it's great. that look, the way his stock, the way his stock have gone, he probably would have got better himself as a three and four year old. But as he said, I like kissed. That's what makes his stock so great and desirable for the trainers the trainers love because they just get better year on year like sovereign death for example won the celebration mile as a nine-year-old um you know, they're, just, they're, they're unbelievably tough and sound and just um they've they've a great determination just to keep going and keep winning
0: uh you know it was hardly a surprise that he should he should sire good sprinters it was a bit more of a surprise as you say that he should sire horses that got better and better and better with age and batash of course was his great flag bearer but harry's angel as well who's who's now starting to do quite well at stud and the philly mecca's angel and lethal force um but to what extent were you surprised a little that he was getting classic winners you know he just side a thousand guineas winner the other day mongustine in france I, i've been watching raging bull in a, in america do 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 his thing for for years
5: yeah, look, you know, he'd always he been doing well at getting horses to win over a mile. You know, Persuasive won the QE2 there a few years ago for John Gosling, Shirdi Park. And as he said, you know, Raging Bull winning in America over a mile. And Altica, they won two group ones over a mile last year. You know, this, you know the Classic is obviously very hard to win, but, you know, it's just the better the better mares are coming into him there the last couple of years. You know, the Mangosteen uh, crop, for example, that's his first crop at 85,000, his highest ever stud fee. And, you know, there's a, obviously there's a lot of pressure when they go to that price. And he, he's really delivered with that first crop at that level. Like, he was champion Turo Sire last year with it. And had Angel Blood, who won a group one over a mile last year. Um, and then, the, so, I thought it was just a, literally a matter of time. Because this horse had run well in classics before. Like, Tip to Win was second in the, in the English 2000 Guineas a couple of years ago for Roger Thiel. Um So, I, I literally think it was just a matter of time being patient. <laughs>
0: So, let's just take a look at some of the Stallions that are hoping to fill his his boots at some point. I mean, who do you have the highest hopes for uh, amongst the others on your roster?
5: Well, uh, I suppose, you know, a new horse this year, Supremacy, um, who, you know, won the Group 1 Middle Park uh, two years ago for Clive Cox. He's actually the first Group 1 winner we've had since Dark Angel to retire to stud here. Um... So you know he's very very similar profile to Dark Angel, won the won the Middle Park like himself at two. Um, it's a very fast family, you know, family of Harry Angel, Pierre this Mrs Gallagher. You know, it's a very speedy family, and being by Maymas, who is doing very good things at the moment. You know, he's uh, he's a very exciting horse, and he's got a very good book of mare sent to him this year um from a lot of the top breeders around England, Ireland, and France. So like we've we choked for him because. Group of winners, you know, they're hard, hard to come by.
3: Uh, that uh, that are
0: owned by independent outfits. And when when you've established yourselves as you have down the years, I mean, could you take any horse? And if you stood it, you would be guaranteed those mares. Or e- or are even you surprised sometimes by which ones capture the imagination and which ones don't really?
5: No, it, it, it definitely you can't just pick any horse, really. Like here, we all, we do have our very loyal breeders that come to us uh, every year for our new horses. But you, you need to have a horse that does, you know takes all the boxes, and you need a horse that you yourself like. Like we send all our stallions a lot of mares. Like you want to be able to send your own horse at least 25 30 mares the first year. Like and you want so you want to be confident you are going to be, be able to breed a nice horse, and that there is a place in the market for it. 'cause you know you know breeders need to do well themselves to be able to sell the stock, so if they're not uh, making a a decent return on their stock they're not gonna come back to you um there it, it needs to be uh everyone needs to to do well out of it
2: and
0: as time goes on what what's really your motivation what what drives you on? how do you stop being jaded by by the whole process?
5: I suppose the uh, just trying to find the next one. You know, it's it's it, the the year you have a hor- a, a new horse, as two year olds running for the first time is it's always it's really exciting to see what happens. Like, you know, more times than not, it, 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 it you're a bit deflated by then because <laughs> you know it's 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 hard to find the horse to do it. Like, but when you when you do have a horse, you know, to do well, it's unbelievably exciting to follow him and just see a stock like and like you know that's why we're so lucky with with the likes of Dark Angel. Like, you know, every weekend Dark Angel <laughs> brings up a nice winner for us. Um. Like obviously, last or two weekends ago, the Guineas was an amazing day. But it's on their regular weekends, he's there and winning the, the the smaller group races as well. Like and so he's just he's always putting everyone in a good in a good mood. Uh, but it's yeah, it's just it's try, they're trying to find the next trying to find the next Dark Angel. That's just keeps you going. Um, and that yeah, that's literally because it's when you when you find a horse like him, it's just it's a dream to work with a horse like him. And the, the mares have come into him on a regular basis now. It's you know, you you recognise them straight away. Like this, when when people say their name to you, you're like, jeez, wow, that that man, oh yeah, brilliant." Um, it just, so that that like, that makes it very exciting when you're when you're working with a, a high class horse like that. Just um makes makes the game. It makes every day a little bit easier because you're when you're dealing with the, with the, the high class stock. It just and place is busy and be, it just you know it's uh it, it makes it makes work on it makes life very easy.
0: All right, thanks to Robert and to Sally and to all my guests today. Jane has a tip for me.
1: Yes, I'm going to Gorn Park this evening for Racing TV in the company of Gary O'Brien. And I hope in race two, a horse called Flying Dolphin in first-time cheek pieces and tongue strap can make a third time lucky for Johnny Murta and Ben Cohn. Farm has been frank. Temple of Artemis was behind him at Leopardstown when he was beaten by Boundless Ocean he was third to Martinstown at Cork last time and I hope he can be good enough to break his maiden tag in the 520
0: Alright Jane thanks so much thank you very much for listening we'll be back to do it again tomorrow that was Tuesday the 24th of May bye bye You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily brought to you in association with Fitzdares